Hi, this is Kathleen Mercury with another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries. I am super, super excited to bring to the show today Game to Grow to strapping young men from Seattle, Washington, who have started a really interesting nonprofit. Game to Grow is a 501c3 nonprofit founded in 2017 on the belief that games of all kinds have the power to improve people's lives. I think everybody out there can agree with that. Game to Grow's weekly therapeutic social skills groups help young people become more confident, creative, and socially capable using tabletop games, most notably Dungeons and Dragons. Founders Adam Davis and Adam Johns use their years of experience in couple and family therapy, drama therapy, and education to develop a unique intervention method which promotes social growth amongst youth in a fun, safe environment. Adam and Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, I'm super excited. I mean, I teach middle school gifted kids. Um, you work with in your sk- social skills groups with kids from you know all across the spectrum. Um, I've used RPGs in my classroom. Many people out there do as well. And I really like this approach that you take of not just hey games are good for kids, hey games build social skills, but it's a it's a targeted intervention. And I think that's a really important piece. And I'm excited to learn more. Oh, yeah. Well, we love talking about it. So that's, awesome. that's perfect. That's really so fun. Well, why don't you tell us each a little bit about yourselves? <laughs> so uh, my name is Adam Davis. Um, my background is actually in, in drama theater, and mm-hmm. I used to be a drama teacher um, and then found my way into drama therapy because one thing that I realized as a drama teacher is that I, I liked helping kids put on a good show. Um, but what I really loved about doing drama work was helping kids know themselves better, work together on a team towards a common goal. And then I sort of stumbled into drama therapy as a way to do that part of the work more intentionally and then found my way into an after-school program that was using Dungeons and Dragons with some uh, quirky and socially isolated kids and then found my way into connecting the dots between Dungeons and Dragons uh, and drama therapy. Now, we we, we, uh, take a lot of inspiration from the the world of drama therapy because Dungeons and Dragons has all the potential to be a sit-down drama therapy group. That's so cool. Um, and I'm Adam Johns, and my background's all in marriage and family therapy. And while I was in grad school, um, I met Adam Davis in a class where we were learning about multiculturalism and sort of sharing the cultures that we belong to. And we both uh, presented a project where we had dice in our project. We sort of saw each other as <laughs> geeks across the room. Uh, and after that class, um, Adam Adam Davis was in the middle of running uh, running some groups using role playing games for social awkward teens and um, had lost his co-facilitator. So he came up to me after the class and said, hey, do you want to play Dungeons and Dragons with socially awkward teens? I said, yes, that is my dream. Um, (laughs) I mean, I play them with socially awkward adults, so you know, it's cool. (laughs) Myself included, there's no, it's all love here. Go on. That's that's often the experience playing the game. Um, (laughs) And I've been a gamer since I was 10, playing role-playing games like D&D. And this was just an amazing opportunity. And, And the more that we did it, the more we saw the opportunity and really um, dig into the experience of saying, what more can we do with this? That that what more can we um, uh, really apply the theories and ideas that we're learning in grad school into a role-playing game setting um, and saw so much so much opportunity to do that exact thing. So Adam and I actually met in fall of 2010, I think, or maybe uh, spring of 2011. And so we actually started working using role-playing games with socially challenged teenagers right around that time. Um, so, you know, you'd read earlier that we founded Game to Grow in, in 2016 or 2017. We've actually been doing this kind of work for since 2011, 2012. Um, we ran a for-profit company called Wheelhouse Workshop for a little bit. And we got up to running three groups a week across the greater Seattle area and then realized that Adam was at the time a, uh, a also a full-time uh, therapist in private practice and I was a full-time classroom teacher. And we realized that there was only so much we could do in that capacity, just having you know the, the therapeutic role-playing game groups be our second job. So then we wanted to make this our our main mission in life was to make help more kids play more games across the country. Um, yeah. So then we started uh, Game to Grow as a nonprofit, and since then we got some grants, some foundational grants to help us. Now we've hired four additional facilitators to run groups in the Seattle area, and then we are expanding to Tacoma. And this fall we're going to have upwards of sixty kids a week 
coming into our therapeutic social skills groups. I, when Adam and I started, we had three kids. Um, right. <laughs> once, once a week, the three kids came to that one group, and now we've got 60-something kids. Um, and we've done uh, trainings and consultations now um, where we've worked in uh, dozens of countries around the world with, with you know, language difficulties, trying to help more people in more countries do more of the kind of work that we're doing with, with role-playing games of all kinds, not just Dungeons & Dragons. Mm-hmm. That's so amazing. Isn't that crazy? Like, it just, like, how... I shouldn't use the word crazy. It's ableist and... It's, and it's baffling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a yeah. doozy. It's it's it, a it, roller coaster <laughs> of, of emotions. <laughs> it's a lovely surprise. It is. It, I mean, just to, especially to find someone else whose skills mesh with yours so well, where you each have your own unique roles and perspectives, but then you're tapping into something that's so incredibly current, so incredibly relevant, especially... You know, I can speak for myself and my own students. There's so many kids that want to play. There's so many kids that want to play RPGs and finding, you know, good GMs or having them learn the skills so they can be good GMs is so hard. I mean, this is kind of off topic, but do you ever have people sign their kids up, not necessarily needing therapeutic benefits, but wanting their kids to be involved? There, so we actually don't require diagnosis for our groups. Mm-hmm. So we have, you know, we, we sort of open a, a wide, open our arms wide for people to come play in our groups because we don't think that this kind of work should be limited to those who have a, a, a diagnosis. We really believe in a very neurodiverse group, a diverse of all all colors, shapes, sizes, every, everybody. We want we want a seat for everyone at our table. So um, – What's what's interesting is that because we don't require a diagnosis and we don't charge insurance, it's not really we're not really operating under the medical model. What we see is a lot of people who don't have diagnoses who are just want a little a place they can belong. Yeah, you were you were talking earlier about uh, you know gay state gay straight alliance, and it's just what we've seen is that a lot of people who come to our groups just want a place where they can have constant social contact where their presence matters. Right. Well, and especially for people who fall on the spectrum or even don't just socially awkward or shy or whatever the case may be, it's really, really hard to find a gaming group. I mean, myself, especially, I mean, I'm female and I have three sisters. I went to an all girls high school. So by the time I think I knew two guys (laughs) until I was like 18. Um, So by the time I got to college and had sort of heard about this, everyone's in established groups. So they don't want to take on a newbie or, you know, all those different kind of barriers. So I didn't actually get to play my first RPG until about five years ago. Mm. And for those of you doing the math at home, I'm 44. So that tells you something about, you know, access to games first of all but also like you said that place of belonging you know when you're when you're socially awkward when you're shy when you're on the spectrum you know social engagements can be so hard and rpgs provide structure so that you have a limited range in which you can do a lot of things and that provides a lot of comfort i should think especially that's is that like the foundation upon which you're building Uh, It definitely, I mean, it's definitely a huge part of it is having structure, building in um, uh, ritual and and, uh, comfort in a space to show up in, um, where especially if somebody is... uh, uh, autistic and and really needs some some clear structure that makes a huge difference to have those pieces in the in the game um, and there's a lot to it that is that is a positive pro social space um, meaning they get to come in they get to have um, good interactions fun interactions with peers and have it feel like it is um, safe for them to mess up mm-hmm. it's safe for them to try out. Um, new things and they won't be rejected from the group as a, as a result of trying something out. Um, and so a lot of what we do is, is facilitate the group in, in that way to make it a, a warm and welcoming space. We, we think of our kids, a lot of them as not being, you know, broken or having social deficits, but just be, uh, they have lagging social skills. Mm-hmm. A lot of them have, have not experienced enough meaningful social interaction to have that sort of intrinsic reward to get them to keep coming back to have more social experiences. So we think of of a role-playing game like Dungeons & Dragons sort of as a gateway to the playground. If you think about the, the playground experience that a lot of us had as kids, which was unstructured narrative social space mm-hmm. um, where we played stories, we navigated the unstructured space of making up stories together and in in the abstract playground, if I say, bang, you're dead. You say, no, I'm not. You missed. 
And we have to navigate that. <laughs> no, no, I shot you. No, no, you missed. Uh, and all that unstructured space is a space where you understand and and hopefully, ideally, in a perfect situation, you learn to navigate that unstructured space. You learn how to advocate for what you want or take, uh, you know, take it as it comes. And maybe they maybe know you are now put in jail. That's that's the rule of our unstructured narrative social play is now you're in jail. All these sort of um, cues you're picking up in a dynamic relational space is something that a lot of kids don't get. A lot of kids now have very structured social interactions. They're playing on a sports team, which has a lot of benefit, but it doesn't have have that sort of uh, ambiguous social space. So what's nice right. about a role-playing game is that it has both. It has lots of rules you can really adhere to and rely on, but then also you can let the rules fade into the background. And then we're just talking in characters. We're just playing. We're just It's the playground. We're just playing house now. You know, we're, we're, we're all of those social childhood experiences that help you reinforce and build social connectedness now can happen in the safety net of a structured game. So... Going from this in terms of like the experience that you're having at the table, you know, one of the terms that you use is game based intervention. So what does that mean in this environment as you're playing the games? Um, I suppose what this what that really means in in our case is that the the game itself is the the real space where the therapy is going to happen. So we do um, occasionally talk uh, explicitly about stuff, but it's much more rare. Most of the time, when we're helping somebody build skills or or uh, advance or grow in the in the areas that they are challenged or in the areas that they have goals, um, what we're doing is we're crafting in game scenarios to specifically target the areas that. They they need for growth. So uh, as an example, if we had somebody who was really struggling to take up space, to speak up for themselves, to um, uh, to uh, um, be louder when they need, need to be louder, um, uh, somebody who's really quiet or often categorized as shy, um, we might put them in a situation where they their character is the one who has to rally an army. Um, to, to help fend off the horde of undead headed in their direction. And so we get the opportunity to say, what, it, what does your character say and how do they say it? And we can both uh, challenge them. We can give them lots of opportunity to, to say, I think you can do a little bit better um, and say, "What? How? stand up, stand like your character stands or speak like your character speaks. Um, or we can back it off and let them have uh, the successes where they need to get them. So we can do a lot of adjustment in the moment, um, but we can also purposefully craft those scenarios, those those individual pieces to target the areas that we know each person at the table is is working on for, for growth and change. So it seems like you like that sort of disconnect that can exist between like self and character, you can kind of play with that dynamic to sometimes you're pushing the character, but sometimes it's more the person and then how you craft it is what you see at the table. That's actually, I think, a, a cornerstone of how, how we use games in our work is really understanding why a young person is playing a character because everyone plays a character for a reason. And every character you play is built on your own thoughts, feelings, and experiences. Even if you think you're making something up totally new, it's going to be a product of your own thoughts, feelings, and experiences. So there's almost always a reason why someone is choosing to play a character that they're playing. So I've, we've had players who uh, struggle in their real lives with uh, extreme isolation, anxiety, and depression. And oftentimes their characters will come in manifesting a lot of the same sort of maladaptive behaviors that they would have. Uh, you know, they'll wander off by themselves. They'll have temper tantrums. They will be very aggressive at the drop of a hat. And all of those things are opportunities for them to relate to their character with some perspective, to gain some some insight perhaps on, on new behaviors to replace those maladaptive behaviors with, but other players also come in with aspirational characters that they themselves in their real life are really socially isolated. They don't feel very confident interacting with other people. So when they make a character who is a bard or is a, a, a war hero, they're making a character that has qualities that they wish they had in their own lives. So then our job there is to help them, have them take away a piece of that character that is built on them, right? It's built on their own thoughts, feelings, and experiences. So we can easily say that character is you. 
Um, and then we, the, what we want to do then is take some of the skill set from that character, take some of the confidence from that character back into their real lives, so they can go out into the world and say, what would my, what would my confident character do in this moment? Would he, would he, she, they introduce themselves to a stranger, advocate for what they want when they, you know, they got the wrong order at the movie theater, they brought the wrong candy over to me when I ordered, I ordered milk duds and I got the, the raisinets. I hate raisinets. What do I do? You know, do I, do I, I self advocate in this moment like my character would do? Those are the tiny little fugitive moments we want them to take away um, mm-hmm. and then bring that into their real life. So understanding for us as facilitators whether which type of character they're playing. Um, and we have a whole typology for different types of, of relationships between their players and their characters has us change the way that we facilitate the game because the success criteria in those different moments uh, may be different. So I, that was one of my – as you were talking earlier, I was thinking – do your games when you're um, do you, you you two act as a GM in these experiences? Correct. Uh, we run each run three groups a week. Uh, we have facilitators that run uh, additional okay. groups as and well. Excellent. Yes, okay. ourselves or the facilitators are always the game masters. Yes. Okay. So if someone were to like walk by, these games wouldn't necessarily look or sound different to anyone else who normally plays an RPG. Correct. That's mostly true. We do speak in a lot of funny voices, and, and uh, there's a lot of a lot of um, goofy times where we'll you do have go to whole. Use the voices, though. What's the point if you're not using right? the voices? That's... I get so mad when people don't use the voices. Come on, now. come on. That's the really that's the really fun stuff. Uh, we will we will have whole sessions where we never roll any dice, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of that depends a lot on the group and and uh, the direction and the and the things that they need. But outside of that, yeah, if you were walking by, it would mostly look basically like a, a regular session of Dungeons and Dragons. So is most of the work for you on the front end in terms of planning all these different adventures and scenarios, or is the work kind of like you like loosely flesh out what's going to happen and then you're just responding as it's going? It's a lot of responding and a lot of improv in the moment. So a lot of our work is relational. It's mm-hmm. We're not gamifying social skills or giving um, you know token, token economies or token rewards for discrete behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be some value for that for a lot of people. But what we're really working on is building relationships and using dynamic affect-based relational space to help them build their social connectedness. So uh, when when we see them walk in the door, we respond with a very powerful physical affect that's, uh, that shows them that we're glad that they're there. Um, we encourage the, the, the relationship building between the players and each other. So we do a lot of, of um, intentional... Uh, leaning back and letting them navigate. I mentioned earlier the playground. We will introduce challenges that they need to solve dynamically. So then I will introduce the challenge and say, uh, what do y'all want to do? And I'm from Texas, so I say, y'all, what do y'all want to do? And then they have to navigate that. And then we watch them struggle oftentimes, and then we'll help them build the skills necessary to help them overcome it on their own. Do you ever find yourself in a position where you're sort of between helping them versus letting them have fun does that do those ever come at odds with each other we we definitely say that around uh, uh, session three they're always going to be frustrated the first couple of sessions are super fun because they get to cast fireballs and use swords and bows and arrows and there's awesome adventure and then all of a sudden they have to work together on a team and achieve a goal and that's so frustrating because I really want to climb the wall and nobody will help me um, those things happen um, but mm-hmm. that's you'd mentioned wh- um, how our groups look different than other uh, just a regular Dungeons and Dragons or RPG group and we will intentionally frustrate our players a lot because that's the space that they need to be in to oftentimes to grow, to build new skills, to uh, push themselves out of their comfort zone. That's exactly where we want them to be. So a lot of our players have never wanted to build any sort of interpersonal effectiveness skills because they've never felt the benefits of being social. So now in a game like Dungeons & Dragons, being having a, a positive social repertoire of behaviors helps you be better at the game because you work together better. You can achieve more social goals and interpersonal goals as a, as an adventuring party. So then we will set up encounters where they need to work together to solve that problem. And then they will struggle working together to solve that problem. So then we can introduce um, maybe some skills, maybe some, uh, some behavioral changes. We can give them the scaffolding that they need to then overcome that challenge. So now they have the motivation for them to learn to be more positive and pro-social is there because the game provides it. I don't provide it as a 
external reward system. So now they really want to get better at understanding uh, how to take turns in in conversation or building a, a greater social repertoire for how to get past non-player characters. Those are all things that they now have a built-in intrinsic motivation to do because it makes them more effective at the game. I will say um, our groups are having fun at the tables, very mm-hmm. important. Um, yeah. And the, va- the vast majority of our participants want to come back week after week. And the report that we get from parents is this is the one thing they will leave the house for. This is the one thing they're excited to go to each week. Um, and to have it be something where there's no screens involved, where they're meeting up with peers and excited to go there and excited to be a part of that that experience for many of these participants, um, this is the first time they've ever had that. Um, and so the, the, that opportunity of saying, this is something you're going to grow at and that you're going to, you're going to build skills at, but it's also going to be so much fun. And it's going to be so much, uh, uh, um, encouragement for you to want to come back week after week and continue to sometimes face frustration in order to have the, the really fun parts that you enjoy. I bet you have parents in tears over this. We have a collection of, of emails received from parents because there are days that the work is really hard. Yeah. Um, oh, God, and, yeah. and, you know, it's, it sounds like, you know, we're professional game masters and we must just be on cloud nine all the time. Some days are hard. We work with kids who have a degree of social challenge. Um, and we get, we do get emails from parents that are, um, Wow, my 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 child never looks forward to leaving the house, but he'll actually do his homework in order to go to the social group. Mm-hmm. And you know that's uh, quite a big turnaround from a lot of I other mean, interventions. I'm not to, yeah, I'm not sorry. I talked over. What would you say? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm just saying most most of the time you wouldn't say do your homework to go to therapy. It's not a conditional, right? Parents wouldn't say you better do your homework. You can't go to therapy. <laughs> It's pretty unique. <laughs> so now we get they get to use the social enrichment as a reward. I mean, it's a it's a, a benefit to the whole family. Yeah, I mean, and this is what I'm just thinking and why I was so excited and interrupted you. But I mean, this is saving kids' lives. You know, I mean, I work with so many kids who um, I work in a very academic district. You know, we do very well in many measures, and there's a lot of pressure on kids to do well academically, especially for my gifted kids. And there are just a lot of times for some of them, they go home and then that's it. They, they are, they're finished with social interaction. They've, you know, put out so much for them. And, you know, what does all this achievement mean if the person is struggling and the person isn't there and the, you know, the social network isn't there. Um, mm-hmm. And just saying, hoping that they'll find their people in college doesn't help us off more, you know? No. So, so, so you guys have a lot of experience with this and you got into this because of gaming and you said you're training facilitators. So when you're working with your facilitators, what, how does that, what does that training look like? And I'm, and I'm asking this from, for also for a larger sense, if there's other people out there who don't necessarily have access to your training programs and they're wanting to use RPGs in a, you know, sort of like, if not therapeutic, then like intentionally helpful sort of way, how do you train your facilitators to do this and then follow up with what should people be careful about when you're trying to use this as an intervention, especially if you don't have the training when it comes to counseling and how that should work? Um, oh, man, there's a lot of parts to that question. Uh, yeah. I suppose um, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll start with the maybe the most important one that's always important to say, which is. Don't do therapy if you're not a therapist. That's what I was right. Say too. Um, yeah. First thing we always say. The first thing we always say. Um, really, the line for that um, is a lot about the contract that you have. Um, it's a lot about the the space that you're walking into. Um, I, I like to compare this to um, going to see a therapist um, versus like talking to your friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you talk to your friend, your friend can be supportive. They can be um, a, a great uh, source of positivity in your life. Um, you, you touch base and your friend can help you through difficult times. All of those things are true. And all of those things might be true for a therapist. The difference between your friend and your therapist is that with your therapist, it's a one-way interaction. Uh, and you have a very explicit and clear contract for the role your therapist is playing. With your friend, that's not the case. With your friend, it's it's um, both ways. You help support each other. Um, and the same thing is true for being a, a Dungeons & Dragons therapist or an RPG therapist. Is It's an explicit contract. And through that, you are um, more explicitly using the game in this intentional way to build 
to build social growth. Um, there's nothing wrong with playing role-playing games and wanting to grow yourself through your gaming experience, um, but it's important not to, not to I guess, expect your game master to fulfill the role of a therapist. And as the game master, not to expect that you are um, uh, coming in to specifically help your your participants get through difficult issues. Um, uh, so that that I think is the is is the uh, safety safety pitch. I guess is the, it, well, kind of setting the boundary and the line on that. No, I think that's incredibly important. You know, I mean, because and you said contracts. Just real quick, do you actually have your your players, the gym, sign like a social contract, or is that something? that you have to just sort of let those sort of norms and practices evolve over the course of a game. So I'm intersect I'm injecting a question in the nest of those other questions, sorry. That's that's a super good question. So we don't have that sort of explicit um, like social norms contract that the players sign with their game master or anything like mm-hmm. that. Um, the way that like a, a classroom teacher might with like the behavioral norms or anything like that, or even in some some group therapy contexts, use uh, sort of a, a behavioral expectations or anything like that for confidentiality or or things like that. Um, we definitely have an intake process with parents where that contract the, the expectations are made very clear, um, and the parents under understand the contract that we have. And so the kids, uh, the relationship we have with them is sometimes dynamic in terms of how many of our players know that this is a therapeutic service versus just a place they can go fit in and belong. And that has to be sort of handled on a case by case basis, because some kids will smell therapy and not want to come back. You know, if they, they show up and then we say, all right, here's your, here's your therapy contract. They're going to bolt. Because right. um, they've been a lot of our kids have been in therapy their whole lives, and that's not something they've ever wanted to participate in. Uh, um, right. You know, they never got a lot of, of, of joy in going to therapy to talk about their issues. Sure. So we we will um, do that kind of thing on a case by case basis. And our our youngest kids are are eight and nine years old, and our oldest are in their um, early twenties. Mm-hmm. So there's a different amount of conversation that's appropriate for those different contexts anyway. Because some players will show up saying, "I'm here because I struggle with my uh, anxiety." And I want to work on my anxiety. And other kids show up barely able to sit down and pay attention without a lot of structure and scaffolding. So we really have a, a dynamic relationship with every single one of our families on the, on that level. Um, to kind of dive into some of the other parts of the, the first question, I guess, um, <laughs> our training for new facilitators is pretty in-depth. Um, we do a, a full weekend long training. So in addition to, to making sure that we're hiring individuals who already have uh, a knowledge and background in role-playing games and a knowledge and background in working with neurodiver- neurodiverse youth um, and with uh, counseling skills or education skills, um, we also run a full weekend training and then do a whole bunch of shadowing. Uh, to have them uh, see and observe the way that we do our groups. And we've developed a a model um, that we've been uh, building and continuing to refine and develop over the course of the, I guess, eight years or so that we've been doing this. Um, And so we get to uh, share share with them sort of the basic theoretical structure that's based on uh, borrowing a lot of ideas from therapy and uh, family therapy and group therapy and drama therapy and education, um, and then walk them through how to do that in a, how to apply that in a really practical sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a, a whole lot to learn uh, because we have an expectation not only for them to um, use the game in a therapeutic way, but they're also running wholly unique worlds and campaigns. Um, it's a, a big task and a big ask for any game master um, just to just to make fully customized worlds with a group of, of um, uh, sometimes hard to handle kids at the table. Sure. It's a whole nother ask to then say, yeah, but I want you to do more than that. I want you to, to <laughs> intentionally, intentionally create those, the challenges and worlds to specifically build areas of growth for the, for the participants. Mm-hmm. So yes, there's a, there's a whole lot of training involved. And we've, we've actually taken a whole lot of that and put it into um, critical core as a base, base sort of set and system for getting people introduced into this. Yeah, well, this we're idea get, yeah, we're of applied to... role playing games. Oh, sorry. Please repeat that. I I I, would, I spoke over you again. I'm sorry. Uh, that's okay. Um, the the essential idea of just there's a whole lot involved. 
um, and there's a whole lot of, of um, uh, training that we want to make sure that the facilitators that we have have under their belt and are ready to go. Um, and we've taken a lot of the theoretical foundation and ideas from uh, what we've done with our trainings and also put them into um, Critical Core, uh, which was a Kickstarter that we ran a little while ago to get uh, I guess a starter set is the, maybe the best way to think about it for intentionally applied role-playing games, especially for um, uh, challenges related to autism. Yeah, and I definitely want to get to Critical Core because I think that's such a great way that others can sort of adapt these ideas that you're doing, which I'm sure is the intent. But when it gets back to these facilitators, does it look different then what happens at those tables as opposed to when either of you is running the table? A lot of what we do is so relational that even Adam and I, who've been doing this for just about the same amount of time, have very different uh, styles. Yeah. Um, you know, so there, there is something to be said, just like, you know, teachers. Teachers might have read the same book on classroom management or the same, you know, book on how to structure a lesson plan, but they're going to have their different voice. They're going to have their different tone, um, different relationships they have with their kids. And the, so we part of our training is to say, do it the way that we do it, um, but then also find your own voice. You know, do do things, um, take what we do, uh, do it to the best of your ability. And if you discover something new that you like that's more effective based on the principles from our training, then I want you to do that. But I want you to share it back with us so that we can also have the opportunity to be better. Um, it's there, there are certain parts of our practice that are um, – it's about a personal relationship. So if uh, our facilitators are saying the words or phrases that sound really good coming out of my mouth but are really awkward coming out of their mouth, then they can find something that's slightly adjacent and then they can do that for the same effectiveness. And that's really what we want to do is focus on the outcomes less on the, the structure. There is something to be said for the fact that experience helps – um, Adam and I have been doing it for a long time, and and there's a lot of uh, stuff that we've done to really streamline teaching this to other people. Um, but we we we've handled a lot of unusual situations that have come up <laughs> in our games, and we now have experience using those. Um, so as much as we are working to pass on those to to our facilitators, there is something that is maybe a little bit different with the games that Adam and I run because we have so much experience with it. Sure, I mean there is like the art and the science, you know, and in right. both cases, there's a lot of development that can happen on either of those ends. Um, but one thing we talked about beforehand was that if you if your phone rang and there was an emergency and you would have to step out, that's because you'd have to go do something. So the what are some of the cases that would um, would be considered emergencies where you would be called in to help out? Um, so this gets a little bit into some of the stuff that has happened in the past, which we'll speak broadly about and making sure that we're giving no identifying of course, information of course, about. Of course, of course. Um, I once had a player. Uh, as I was doing my very, very first session of the game, one player was very experienced and brought all of their dice along mm. with them, ready to go in their first session, very excited about it. And another player had never played before. Um, and as I was introducing the idea of dice, my player who had never played before got up and ran around the table and grabbed the dice from the experienced player. Now... There's a lot of belief and superstition in the role-playing games world that touching somebody else's dice takes away their luck um, and that you should always ask before you touch somebody else's dice in case they have those superstitions. But my new player didn't know anything about that and so uh, ran back to their seat, now holding all the dice from the experienced player. And the experienced player got up from their seat, ran around the table, and punched my new player right in the chest and took his dice back. <laughs> um and uh, it all happened so fast. There really wasn't anything. I, I certainly wasn't expecting it. There really wasn't wasn't uh, anything I could have done to prevent it. And nobody was injured, but mm -hmm. but it was definitely like a moment of having to navigate a very challenging space of both explaining the 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 culture and the ideas going on, and also making it very clear that punching somebody is not an acceptable way to handle your frustration on them uh, and and that uh, that is not going to be tolerated in the in the group as a whole so there's a lot of um, navigating a space in the moment for that we screen for a lot of these things now yeah process now includes things like do you think there's any reason why your uh, your child would uh, lash out physically or verb verbally and if so what are the circumstances and context so we can know about that to be informed mm -hmm. um, so a little bit of that we we have built in some of those things. Another one we have now built in is flight risk. Mm 
So there was uh, a time where a young person had a bad dice roll and decided that they didn't want to, they didn't have the uh, tool set to deal with their frustration. So they got up and walked out. And I was then following a young person down a public street. <laughs> and, you know, those are the kinds of things that... Uh, Luckily, was... we had the staff uh, capacity for me to do that. Um, so right now, if if there was an emergency in the other room where a young person similarly was uh, not equipped to handle with the frustration and then they wanted to get up and leave, I might be summoned to go follow somebody down the street. Um, that doesn't happen very often in, in all of our years. It's only happened two or three times in the entire time. Um, and now we, we also screen for frustration tolerance. Um, not to say that they're no longer allowed to join the group, but I would ask the parent to be close by if there is a history of something like that, right? So we always have um, emergency contact information now to to support some of that uh, that need as the case might, might warrant. Well, so I guess that's because this, like still going back to thinking about um, for non-trained people wanting to do this, are there any other on this, while we're on this topic, uh, are there any other sorts of things that can happen or that like, or the more like commonly seen sort of behaviors that you have to deal with on a more frequent basis? The, I think the, the more, much more common thing to come up is um, emotional vulnerability. Um, and that's a, a difficult space to navigate because it really depends on many, many factors for how best to navigate that space. And it's also something that, that might come up in a classroom. You might have a, a, a student who um, suddenly, you know, connects well with the, the material that you're presenting in your literary class and says, yeah, this, this material reminds me about how my friend committed suicide last year. Um, and you may have to navigate that space as a classroom teacher, um, knowing that you're not a therapist and this is an inappropriate space to dive deep into, like, let's talk about how that suicide impacted you. But you also need to maintain um, a good space where the person feels heard and where the person feels like they are they are supported. And there's a lot of pieces to that kind of thing. And the same thing is true in a role-playing games group. And there's a lot of opportunity for emotional vulnerability. You're playing characters that that may speak to you in a, in a really um, important and emotional way. And that could come out in, in lots of different factors, including your character got injured or died. Um, and that may bring up a lot for you personally. Mm-hmm. Or, or the characters may experience something that could be traumatic. The, the Dungeons and Dragons world is a, is a, it's a, it's a fantasy world uh, where, where lots of lots of wacky things can can happen, uh, and um, there may be something that gets touched on that you maybe even didn't know your players had a history with. Um, and so, one of the most important things to to sort of keep in mind is how will you deal with emotional. Uh, um, challenges, I guess, as they come up. And some of that you can do ahead of time. And we highly recommend, lots of people do, um, where you can set up some structure. Um, uh, we're big fans of the the term session zero, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, the, the session before you actually sit down to play, having a time where you have a conversation about the kind of game that you want to play. And, and it's also a great time to talk about the the um, kinds of tools that you might want to have set up for yourself and your group. Um, and those are uh, a great way to uh, help give structure to some of those things in the event that something comes up with somebody being especially emotionally vulnerable and you don't have the space or the tools to deal with it right there. Well, I think this is a really good time we can start talking about Critical Core because this is um, the product that you have created so that uh, others can use um, role-playing games um, it's, 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 it's directed specifically towards people with autism on the spectrum or, or that's one aspect of its like intent. I, I guess I, yeah, um, it, it is one aspect of its intent, I guess is a good way to put it. It's really built on our, on our approach, mm-hmm. um, which also means that, um, it really also does not really require a diagnosis of autism or, or anything of that nature. Um, and is really more aimed at social, um, uh, what's the what's the term you always enrichment. use? It's social enrichment building, um, but it, it does have a lot of tools and a lot of specific language aimed at uh, uh, welcoming neuro- neurodiversity and welcoming a broad range of of um, uh, personality and mm-hmm. and um, uh, neuro neuro differences at your at your table. So critical core is set in a fantasy world like D anD D. So why 
why do you work in fantasy? Why why do you choose D&D? Why does Critical Core have that fantasy aspect in terms of its setting? I think the the best answer to that is that I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> and go the, with what you know. <laughs> it's I go with what I know. Um the other side of it is there's a little bit of a cheat here as a game master who's been doing this for a very long time. Sometimes it's easier to just say that this is because of magic. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of players in our groups that are much, much smarter than I am when it comes to engineering and science and chemistry. And I consider myself pretty good at those things. Mm-hmm. And even still, some of my 10-year-old players could uh, could school me all over the place on, yes. on um, you know, the history of, of – um, uh, war machines, mm-hmm. and or, or the magnetic or, nature of certain types of metal. Yeah. One time they were schooling Adam because Adam was like, "Oh yeah, it was magnetic," and they're like, "That's not magnetic. <laughs> that that element is not magnetic." <laughs> I have well, a memorized the periodic table. I know this. Well, it's this is magical. So, <laughs> so a lot well, of times the explanation is like, "Well, there is also magic involved." <laughs> that's so funny. Well, because it's with uh, I teach in one of my classes, they're doing a humor unit, and one of my students were doing puns, and we're doing science based puns. And I think this kid, like this team plays, I don't know, eighth in the country in Science Bowl. He's making all these like science and elemental puns, and people are like, yeah, we don't get it, buddy. <laughs> He's like, no, because this, this, this. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, we get it now. We get it now. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that's right, though. I mean, when because I have, I teach tabletop game design to my seventh graders, and when you add magic, then you can it's games bend and break the rules of science and society. But when you add magic, it gives you extra leeway to do it. Because when I talk about, like, what are the actions a dolphin could take in a game if you're using action selection? Well, they can swim. They can mate. They can, you know, stay away from predators. They can catch fish. And then I said, yeah, and they can also look for magic gems on the ocean floor, you know. Because just when you start throwing that in, it just opens up possibilities that you're not so restricted to, okay, now what is – the traditional diet of the bottlenose dolphin versus, you know what I mean? Like it just lets, it gives you, yeah, it gives you that sort of like breathing space, which was sort of what I was wondering if that, and plus too, fantasy, I think allows for a lot more um, idealized versions of our best selves. You know, Um, there's nothing wrong with being a mid-level manager in a cell phone store because every single one of us have had cell phone problems and we're glad that there's somebody there to help (laughs) us with it. But at the end of the day, it's probably not our dream. Again, nothing wrong with it. And it probably makes more money than me sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, fantasy lets you be, it's a power fantasy, and you can be so strong and so capable and so many things that probably a lot of these kids really struggle with on a daily basis. Uh, I would even go so far as to say um, the kids that often attend our groups struggle with um, the opportunity for power and choice and autonomy way more than than a lot of other teenagers do too mm-hmm. um, because the uh, their particular challenges have set them up to constantly need a lot of care and a lot of guidance and a lot of um, a lot of support which unfortunately has the the co-occurring challenge of often losing much of your autonomy and your ability to make real choices for yourself. So many of the players who come and attend the groups really want to be a powerful character who, who has the opportunity to make real impact in the world and, and uh, really save people and really feel powerful. Um, and I think that's uh, an important part to, to that model, to let them see an ideal self. And another really interesting thing that Adam was just uh, uh, saying made me think of it was um, not every everything you see in the in the groups that the kids present uh, means what you think it means. So Adam was just saying that a lot of our kids come in without having a lot of experience of autonomy or power. Mm-hmm. So their characters might be really mean or really – they are just so mean to the non-player characters. Mm-hmm. And while on the surface that might be something we don't necessarily want to reinforce, like just overtly antisocial behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, for a young person who's very outwardly in their normal life shy and they choose to be mean or to make fun of uh, an NPC who's played by the game master who can handle it and is not personally offended by it, then we can play with giving that person power. 
and play with giving that person the sort of authority to make fun of an NPC. And then Adam and I will play right along as the NPCs. Like, oh, okay, I, I guess I shouldn't have said that thing that I said. You're totally right. Where'd you get your sword? It's really, okay, I'll be quiet. <laughs> you know, we can totally play with it. And then it's, it becomes safe to play in this and, and experiment and play. There's no adult saying, don't do that. That's not good. Mm-hmm. Um, here's how you're supposed to be, right? You're kind so of sandboxing can, them a little bit, giving more of them that open, free space to play for them to exactly. figure out how it feels, how they want to navigate that. Right. And if they get really good at being really mean um, and it's no longer playful, it's just a power thing that we want to then start introducing alternatives to me, you know, acting just like that. Because it's not something we want to mm-hmm. have them walk out and say, guess what I learned today, mom? <laughs> if I'm really mean, I get what I want from people. Yay. Um, I am going to request, though, that the rest of the interview you do using voices. Oh, I can do it. I will do so many voices. You got it. (laughs) Oh, my God. No problem. Officially my favorite. Um, So so talk about Critical Core, because I think this is so great. Because one of the problems, I think, with D&D is it can be really overwhelming. People, kids, like, I want to learn D&D books. You're cool. Now you need these books, multiple plural um you got your screen cool you got your character sheets good luck making the character on your own you know like all the aspects like i was so overwhelmed the first time i played D and took me a few sessions wait wait what do i roll again okay <laughs> you know mm-hmm. so um then how do you transport your experience and critical core is your method so so tell us about critical core and why and how you developed it so critical core was built on our experience talking to other people about what we do. So we were the um, keynote speakers at the Washington Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. We've done presentations with the North American Drama Therapy Association, the Play Therapy Mm -hmm. uh, Conference. And we've been telling stories and talking about our theoretical model. And we've had an auditorium full of therapists go, this is amazing. And I definitely want to do this. And how do I get started? And we say what you just said, which is we should, well, you got to buy the books and then learn how to play. And then we suggest you go maybe to a game store and for about six months, you know, play, learn how to play the game. And then and then find a, a group of trusted individuals you are willing to learn how to be a game master for. You know, there's just so much in mm-hmm. becoming good at it because learning the game is one thing, learning to be a game master master is another thing game being a good game master being a good game master for a sensitive population and then being a good game master for a sensitive population to achieve outcomes that's a lot yeah that's yeah. a lot to build up so we wanted to take out some of the early steps and make the game accessible both to a neurodiverse population but also to brand new game masters and brand new players because the concept and the structure of a uh of a game like Dungeons and Dragons is that the asymmetrical nature of having a game master and having players and having the sort of um, one person who's facilitating the game is a brand new experience. Most uh, people who play board games think of Monopoly or they think of life. They think of we're taking turns. We do a thing on our turn. So the, the difference in the structure is something that we want to just teach that quickly Get it right out of the gate. Here's the structure of a, of a role-playing game, and here's how it's different. Mm-hmm. So that a new game master who's trying to use this with kids or, or in a library or in a community center, whatever it is, they can can jump right into that. So we've also taken out character creation in Critical Core because that's another big thing in Dungeons & Dragons and similar games that there's sort of a cart before the horse thing where you have to u- make all these choices about your character, but you've never played before, so you don't know the meaning of those choices and building your character until you play. And then you play for a couple of months, and then you realize all the choices you should have made differently when you first right. made your character. Right? That's the, the classic uh, story. Um, so we've taken a lot of that out in Critical Core and, and built uh, built the game around the play, around the story, and taken out some of the mechanics, but not all, because the mechanics are also an important structural component to the game. Mm-hmm. Do you use Critical Core exclusively with your um, your in your groups now, or do you use both? Um, s- we actually mostly just use uh, Dungeons and Dragons Fifth uh, Edition. Mm-hmm. Um, the The idea behind Critical Core is really that it is a stepping stone. Um, we don't want uh, necessarily anybody to to just use Critical Core. We want it to be a, an opportunity for people to to then uh, take more into their role playing game uh, systems that they run on a regular basis. And if you're an experienced game master, um, that's where the module design and the facilitators guide really play the biggest role um, for what your your takeaways are going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the modules that we're running for that we're put have put into Critical Core are all based on um, storylines that we have run 
run again and again in our in our own campaigns. So those are actually the same stories and the same challenges and the same um, uh, sort of setups for skill building that we use in our own groups, um, as well as everything in the facilitator's guide is all <laughs> really like all techniques and all uh, strategies that we use within our own groups to help help them run better and to help the the players build build social engagement. What, is there anything in particular that's put into the game, um, especially for people on the spectrum? I think the the most um, sort of specifically targeted piece for individuals on the spectrum uh, really goes into the um, skill building selection part. Mm-hmm. Um, so every single the, – the way that the um, modules are put together is that every single um, – uh, I guess challenge uh, might be the best way to put it. Every single um, encounter that the the players are going to come across um, has a whole outline and a specific uh, setup for you to to um, uh, navigate it and the the language for you as a game master to be able to run it. Um, and then it also tells you what kinds of skills it works on. Um, and that's that's really where um, the intentional therapeutic side of it um, comes out and, and really comes into play is is where it's explaining to you here's here's the purpose of this here's the reason why this particular puzzle exists here and here's how you can use it to then enhance skills even more um, and that's where it's it's focused on um, on neurodiversity and it's focused on skill skill enhancement and those skills are all really targeted around skills that often are um, goals that we see in uh, an autistic population that we we have in our own groups. Mm-hmm. Is there some sort of assessment piece that you put in so that when people are using this with kids, if they are trying to use it specifically to target specific skills, is there anything provided for them as far as getting a measure of progress for their, for their participants? We're actually uh, – this – fall, we're doing some some clinical research, actually, and doing some pre and post uh, intake questionnaires. Mm-hmm. So we'll be linking to some of that. A lot of this will happen in a um, with our beta testers to make sure that the test is valid, that, that, th- that those things actually record the things we want them to record. Mm-hmm. So before we go to full you know, assurance in our kits that this is the right measurement we want to give. We'll be doing more testing on our own to make sure that it is the right test. But we will have some um, some tools for teachers and, and clinicians to use to, to measure outcomes. There's a little bit of, a, of a, a challenge here, as you would know this as a teacher, is that sometimes having an assessment all of a sudden guides what then you're doing. Sure. Um, and so we want to be a little bit cautious about uh, being reductive with our uh, intervention because there's it's it. the last thing we want to do is give an assessment that says, uh, how often does your child make eye contact? Right. Um, and then all of a sudden, that becomes a thing that the game masters are making sure to teach because they want to make sure that it's in, you know recorded in the assessment. So sure. we have a, l- a little bit of that as just kind of a, a delicate balance we have to make while sure. still also wanting people to find and see the results that we expect. That makes sense. This is so interesting. Yeah, well, I think it's really fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is. It has definitely been something that uh, you know we when we started doing this years and years ago. It was it was uh, just a really cool idea. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was one of those things that was. I think this could be more than it is now. And the fact that you just asked like a really great question about how we assess for behavioral change using role playing games is just. I love the world that we're in now. Right. I would never. I never would have imagined that. You know, five years ago, that well, you would have said, how, how, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's one thing, too, because when it comes to, like, me using the games and, I mean, there's obviously, I'm a little selfish here, you know, wanting to see how you tie this into, like, measurable outcomes, I'm very okay with not having measurable outcomes sometimes, and I'm sure my administrators don't like hearing that because there's some things (laughs) where... It means I have to know exactly what that thing is and how I measure that thing is correct and that my measurement is reliable and valid and then it means something, you know, because as it is right. right now within gifted populations, obviously all my kids are there ultimately because of their performance on an IQ test, which is still a test and there can be positives and negatives associated with that. And so having sort of like more or less the trust that there can be benefits from this without absolutely being able to know the specific 
gains that each individual student has made. You know, like I have to believe there's something good happening. I mean, there's different things that I do, you know, but Jen, but ultimately at the end of the day, I can't know what's going on in a kid's head fully and completely. So I just have to do what I think is ultimately going to be best towards opening up doors and windows, you know, but that separate them from the world so that they can be part of the world and vice versa. Right. And and the the uh, Center for Disease Control just had a big announcement that they their their research shows that uh, connectedness, levels of connectedness in adolescence is directly related to a lot of life outcomes. So if you have a social social connection in in your adolescent years, it reduces the chances that you will grow to have obesity, uh, that you will be have issues around suicidality and chemical dependency and sexually transmitted diseases. There's so many things mm-hmm. that are outcomes that can and have been tied to, I mean, all research is subject to all kinds of flaws anyway, sure. but the, the idea here that the, the Center for Disease Control has now officially told schools that they need to start caring about adolescents' social connectedness is, I think, an, a door that is open for people like us to use games because what does a game like Dungeons & Dragons or Critical Core, etc. do, but it provides an avenue for building social connectedness and and relationships. So you look at your kids who play games together, and I'll bet they, at lunch or what limited amount of recess still exists in our in our modern school system, whether who they talk to during that lunch and recess time, I'll bet they have some degree of connectedness with the people they play games with. Right. And I think that right there is 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 something. I don't know what clinical measurements are out there for when a kid shows up to a to a D and D group, and other kids go, "Hey, how are you?" Like that right there is huge for some of our kids. Some of our kids have so much anxiety and depression that they don't make it through a whole school day. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it means their anxiety and depression means they they don't feel up to coming into to our groups, to our D&D groups. But then the next week when they show up, the kids who are in their adventuring group say, hey, where were you last week? We we really missed you. Mm -hmm. And that is a profound experience for a lot of young people to feel like your presence authentically matters in a social group. And that is hard to measure. But I have seen it across lots of our young people's faces when they feel like they belong. Right. And that is something that I think is, is that's the work. That's the mission right there is to give more young people a feeling like they matter. I can't think of anything better to end this on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, speaking to the choir, I think both as an educator, you know, someone who works with gifted kids, but also as a human, I think at the end of the day, this is all that we're wanting. So thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk with us about what you do and how you do it. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Great talking to you. Yeah. So if people want to know more, where can they find you? Uh, They can find out about us at GameToGrow.org, our website. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at GameToGrow. It's Game T-O Grow. Game is singular because it's a verb. Game to grow. Don't just game. Game to grow. Um, And uh, um, we have an Instagram. If people like Instagram, we're on there too. But that's my least common social media platform that I use. (laughs) Right. right, Generally, Twitter, Facebook, um, you can always email us. We also love hearing about people's stories. So, um, you know, even if you are not in the Seattle area, even if you don't have a particular need for Critical Core uh, personally, uh, let us know your story. Let us know how games have impacted you in a positive way. Um, those those stories help us continue to, to um, uh, you know, be motivated. <laughs> uh, but they also um, are meaningful. Mm-hmm. The way games have improved your life are are meaningful and we want you to be able to share that as well. And if you, dear listeners, are uh, interested in training, we do provide consultations. So you can sign up and have an hour of video chat with us for us to share uh, some of our tips, tricks, and experiences. Uh, we also have been... Um, in the pipeline, we have some some in-person trainings at various locations uh, around the country. We're preparing to, to uh, launch in 2020. Uh, you can find out more about that on our website, or you can join our newsletter, uh, gamedero.org slash newsletter, to be first to find out about that stuff, too. That's so awesome. Oh, my God. I can't wait to see what happens for you guys, because this is such a good idea, and you are tapping into so many things that kids want and parents want and that they need, and well done. 
<laughs> thank you, thank you so much. I'm yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> I always, I always love the enthusiasm. Around. No, I, I think it's so good. It's, I mean, I've, I have kids in my room every single day for lunch because the cafeteria is too much and they play games and it varies from, you know, twelve kids to like twenty five kids and we're dragging in folding chairs and mm. uh, I have a group of kids that come every single day and they talk about D and D while they play other games and if they didn't have this space and if they didn't have each other, I would be very, very concerned for them. But luckily, they found it and you guys are creating the way for other kids to if they can't find it on their own you're helping them find it and it's you're saving kids lives i'm very comfortable saying that so anyway well this has been kathleen mercury with an amazing if i say so myself episode of games and schools and libraries you can find uh all my education resources given away for free uh, for game design at kathleenmercury.com i am on twitter and also on instagram but as one of my students said he's like your instagram account is just board games your dogs and you with too much makeup on and he's not wrong <laughs> but so instagram twitter uh mostly twitter really but i'm at mercury with seven m so at mercury so um until next time have a lot of fun in your classrooms and have a great school year well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Games and Schools and Libraries podcast. You can find out more about us and the people who create this show over at InverseGenius.com and all of our other wonderful, wonderful shows, including on board games, on RPGs, the Inverse Genius podcast, and the Room Escape Divas. We are also now joined by the Party Gamecast and Nephilope, who you might remember as Stephanie, previous co-host here on the Games and Schools and Libraries podcast, and our friend, Lynn Theory. Thank you for listening. Games in Schools and Libraries is produced in association with the Georgetown County Library System.